journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shabuat Tov, Shabuat Tov to everybody. Hope everybody's staying warm, certainly in Johannesburg. If you're listening from afar, hope you're enjoying your summer. Um, we are in the throes of really a cold spell, and we are here to warm the cockles of the heart and the mind by learning Torah. So thank you for joining me on 101.9 Chai FM. Um, and as always, love that you would join the conversation on 34519. That's our SMS line, 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. If you have a question, if you have a comment, please don't be shy. I'm here with you for the next hour where we can go and debate, ask, and ponder the mysteries of this world. And the way that we do that is we are learning the book of Exodus. We have just started the Pasha of Ayera, and so we're in chapter 6. And um, we're going to make quite a bit of headline hopefully today because there's a little bit of um, just important information that we know built into the fabric of the story of the exodus of Egypt. And we are going to start on verse 10. So chapter 6, verse 10. Um, anybody following in the Hebrew? Perig Vav Pasuk Yud. Now, where we were at the end was that um, last week we spoke a lot about suffering and we spoke a lot about the fact that um, this world is very, very difficult to navigate when we don't have God, when we don't have the name of God in his ability to transcend space and time, the yud K vav K, the Shem Havaya. Um, if we start putting our trust in other things, we eventually land up shutting down that we cannot hear anything anymore. And this is really what happened with the Jewish people. The, the um, bondage and the suffering, the enslavement became so bad that even when Moshe came back to say that God is going to redeem you, he is going to take you out, it kind of basically fell on deaf ears because um, the people were so enveloped, so swallowed up in their suffering, they could not even bear the thought of thinking that they were going to get out. They actually saw no way out. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Adel Kozulski and it seems that we are having one of our, our lovely days um, with electricity. <laughs> Hassles, we're live again. I don't know where I left off, so we're going to just go back to verse uh, verse 10, I'm going to read the verses and we're going to pick up from there. By the Ber Hashem El Moshe Demor, God speaks to Moses, saying, Boda Ber El Paro, please come speak to Pharaoh, Melech um, Mitraim, the king of Egypt, the Yishalach et Benesra Matzor, and you've got to make him and let him know that he has to let the children of Israel leave his land. By the Ber Moshe Lifnei Hashem, so Moshe says to God, Lemor, saying, the Jewish people will not listen to me. How is Paro going to listen to me? And I, 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 have, I have an inability to speak. I am disabled in my lips. So here again, Moshe is bringing out a, uh, the complaint that he is, um, he has a speech impediment. 
The Jewish people haven't listened to him. They've shut down. They're so enveloped in their suffering that there's nowhere to go. In that, in, from that from that point of view, what is going to really happen if I've got to come before Moshe? Now, basically what God was telling Moshe is that he had to speak harshly now to Paroi. And there's a saying that one does not get anything from a fool unless one strikes him, meaning that you actually need to wake Paroi up, so you have to become harsh. But Moshe's retaliation to God is, he'll never listen. I'm such a poor speaker. Like, you think I'm going to go to Paroi? I'm going to threaten him. How could I ever hope that he would uh, listen to me? Now, it seems that Moshe had forgotten what God had told him initially. Initially, God had said um, earlier in chapter 4, verse 12, God said to Moshe, I will be with your mouth and I will instruct you since um, he will be your, um, and I will instruct you what to say. So don't be concerned that you have impaired speech because Aaron is going to be your spokesman. So why did Moshe go and say all of that all of that now. So uh, God replies to him by Daber Hashem al Moshe, this is verse 13. Be'el Aaron, al Moshe be'el Aaron, he says to both of them, by Yitzhabem et Bnei Israel, be'el Paro Melech Mitzrayim, he commands them and gives them instructions what they should do with the king, with King Paro, king of um, Egypt, be'lehotziet Bnei Israel, me'eretz Mitzrayim, to take the children out of Egypt. So, now you see that God changes direction. Moshe complains to God, I can't speak. What do you want me to go and say to this guy? I've got a speech impediment. I can't go by myself. You want me to be harsh now. I can hardly get the words out. So now we see a change in direction by Daber Hashem al Moshe el Aharon. He brings Aaron on board and he speaks to them together because now he is going to instruct them how to become harsh with now, um, why did God, and we can just discuss it again, I did mention it, but I think it bears discussion again, why did God make Moshe with a speech impediment? If God is everything and he can do anything, why do you give a guy who now needs to take millions of people out, who needs to negotiate heavily, who needs to have the gift of the gap in order to push the agenda forward, why do you make him stutter? It should actually be the other way around. We know very much that when we um, look at people who have got the ability to speak, to express themselves, to deliberate, to negotiate, they are far better than a person who will stutter along the way. So is God a cruel God? Was he trying to be nasty to, to Moshe? Well, you're going to have to hang on a little until after the break where we are going to discuss this. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Right, so what's God being cruel to Moshe? Why did he make Moshe with a speech impediment? Well, the truth is, is that the reason why he made him with a speech impediment was not a curse was not a challenge, was not an obstacle, but rather it was a gift-wrapped gift to Moshe. Um, because what God wanted was that 
everybody, both the Egyptians and the Jews, should go and recognize that their coming out of Egypt was miraculous. If Moshe had the gift of the gab, and he was a powerful negotiator, and a powerful statesman, and a powerful person who could express himself so profoundly, then it could be that when they left Egypt, the, the, the Egyptians and the Jews, the world, would look back and say, you know why this happened? It was because, look at the way he expressed himself. He had the ability to convince people. He had the ability to change people. And God would have been left out of the picture. Moshe's impediment and his inability to speak forcefully and um, in, a, in a, a very profound way was actually there to magnify the miracle of the going out of Egypt, that there would be no question that this miracle could only be by the hand of God. So what lesson do we learn from that and what can we extrapolate in our lives? I think it's very clear and very simple. There are many times, and we've seen it many times. I certainly have read about it many times. I know even with myself. If we have limitations or we have certain things that seemingly look as that they are obstacles, challenges, or stuff in our life that does not allow us to move forward, perhaps instead of looking at the glass half empty, we should look at the glass half full and ask ourselves, maybe there is a gift that needs to be unwrapped here, and I cannot do, or I'm not able to do whatever it is that I need to do, because there's something much greater at work and God is asking me maybe to call upon other reserves that I have. You know, I, I, examples of this. For example, there is, I just heard a, a, a podcast of a guy who landed up, I think, in one of the, the Israeli wars and he got shot um, and hurt and he had a spinal cord injury and that made him completely paralyzed to the point that he lives on a ventilator. But his mind remained 100%. His body was now damaged because of a spinal cord in injury. And uh, they were talking about this man. I, 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 his name fails me right now. But he's done incredible, incredible things in certain areas in um, Israeli society because he was put in the situation that he finds himself in now by having that spinal cord injury. In fact, he just proposed um, to somebody, I don't know who that somebody was, um, and, to, to, and to get married. And everybody's like looking at him saying, you, can you get married? You've got a complete spinal injury, you're completely paralyzed, you're breathing on a ventilator, and you want to get married. And his point out to the world was, I have achieved more in my limited state now than I have ever achieved when I was a fully functional human being. And there are many, many, many cases of this. And if we're talking about complete uh, inability to function, there is a very famous Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhi Hurwitz, who suffers from ALS. He lies in the bed and he only has movement in his eyes. He also um, has to have help breathing. He puts out Divrei Torah. He teaches Torah to the world. He communicates with people all through a computer. 
That's the message. The message is, is that there are times in life where we will have an impediment, we will have an obstacle, we will have a challenge. Sometimes it's for us to climb over that challenge. Sometimes it's for us to work through the challenge. Sometimes it's for us to accept that challenge and work out what God wants us to do, what resources are within us to live a better, more productive life. And that's why Moses had a speech impediment, not because God wanted to be cruel, not because God was punishing him, but in this case, when the Jewish people leave Egypt and when Pharaoh acquiesces, nobody can go and say, well, it was because he was a powerful statesman. And don't kid yourself. I don't think anybody can, should kid themselves that when we see open miracles, very, very often what we do by human nature is eventually we go and just try find some physical reason, cause, explanation as to why we did what we did. Let's take another example. Just, And I'm sorry I'm belaboring the point, but I think it is so important because as human beings, we tend to fail in this department. Let's look at the miraculous war, the Six-Day War, for example. When the Six-Day War happened, and in six days, not only did the Israeli army manage to go and um, vanquish all their enemies on all sides. But we got back to Jerusalem, and the, sta- the nation was in a state of euphoria. Everybody was speaking about the miracles, the miracles that happened. But now, 50 years later, it was 10 years later, 20 years later, the talk about miracle has diminished. And the talk about No, the Israeli army just had a clever strategy. And let's just study the way they thought this and the way they thought that. And and, and this is really how it had to be. Now, in truth, practically, that's how it came out, that God empowered that the the, the IDF, I don't know, uh, 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 officers were able to work out all of these strategies. But it was God that gave them that gift that allowed them miraculously to conquer what they did. But we quickly swapped the narrative around, and we don't say, oh, it was God that gave us back Jerusalem, but it was that clever IDF, Moshe Dayan, whoever it was, that, that worked out the strategy, or they had the guts, and they had this, and they had this, and, and this is how it happened. And so as Jewish people, we need to recognize, and we need to understand, and we need to inculcate into our belief that everything that God gives us, sometimes when we hit a rock a hard place. We hit a rock. We hit we hit a, a challenge or an obstacle or we have an impediment. It's not there because God is being cruel to us. He wants to punish us. He's making it difficult for us. But he's asking us to call upon things much deeper within us and transcend to places that perhaps we would not transcend to because we we, we would have had everything that we need. And that was really the message with Moshe and Aaron and why Moshe's Speech was was um, was, was, was it was difficult for him to talk. Right now, not only that, what the Torah now goes and does is that it gives a yichus, it gives a heritage of Moshe and Aaron, because it wants to make clear in the beginning, and very interestingly, it wasn't clear all the time that they were the chosen two to go to um, Pharaoh and to negotiate the Jewish people leaving. Okay, Um, We see that many, many times Moshe's leadership 
is challenged. In fact, two, three weeks ago, we read about Korach and how Korach went and said, who the heck do you think you are? I'm a cousin as much as you are from the same same family. Who do you think you are that you should be the leader, that your brother Aaron um, should be the high priest? Aren't you, uh, on, 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 isn't this nepotistic? So before the whole story of the going out of Egypt happens, the Torah sits down, okay, and explains to us the lineage. And so we're going to go through these verses now very quickly. Before I even start, there's going to be one question. Moshe and Aaron come from the Shevet of Levi. Levi was the third-born son. There were two sons born before Levi, Reuben and Shimon. Reuben and Shimeon. Okay? So the question is, if the Torah is now going to just make it very clear, who was in this family of Levi? And who Moshe and Aaron, uh, how Moshe and Aaron felt part of it? Why, as you're going to see when we read it, we're talking about Reuben and Shimon. And the answer is, is that Reuben and Shimon were sternly reprimanded by their father at the time that he was about to pass on. Jacob gave them a really stern reprimand on a number of stuff. And the truth be said is that Reuben and then by extension Shimon were really supposed to be the leaders of the Jewish people by virtue, number one, of Reuben being firstborn. And if he didn't make it, then his brother Shimon. Okay, just like we look at the royal family, how it goes down in the bloodline. But they were shunned, and the entire leadership of the Jewish people moved on to Levi. When Yaakov reprimanded them, they kept quiet, and they accepted the reprimand. And so to reinstate somewhat their dignity, um, before we get into the tribe of Levi, we are told about the tribes of Shimon and Reuben, Reuben and Shimon, I should say. Okay, after Levi, we don't carry on hearing the lineage of everybody else because this discussion here, this discussion here is about proving that Moshe and Aaron are, legitim- are the legitimate Jewish leaders. So let's look at verse 14. These are the heads of the family clans. So they're just telling us who were the sons of Reuven. And they mention here, Bukhar Yisrael, he was the firstborn of Israel. Who are the sons of Reuven? Hanoch, Upalu, Chetzron, the Karmi. Okay, there were one, two, three, four, four sons. Hanoch, Palu, Chetzron, and Karmi. Ele, Mishpachot, Reuven. These are the families of Reuven. These were the heads of those families. Then in verse 15, Ubene Shimon, Yemuel, the Yamin, the Ohad, the Yachin, the Tzohar, the Shau, Ben Haknanit, Ele Mishpachot Shimon, and they mention again Shimon's children, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Tzohar, and Shaul. Interestingly, when it comes to Shaul, it says that he is Ben Haknanit, the son of the Canaanite woman. We've discussed this at length in the beginning. But just to remind um, the, our listeners that the Canaanite woman is in fact Dina. 
Dina was a sister to all the brothers of the children of Israel. And um, after, sadly, her, uh, she was taken by a, a, a Canaanite, okay, by, by, by the Canaanim. She was called the Canaanite woman, but she was restored back into the family by her brother marrying her. And she gave birth to Shaul. We'll, we've discussed it at length, and if you'd like to follow, you know, find that, you can go back into the podcasts on 101.9 High FM, and you can learn about it there. So as a measure of restoring dignity, we've just been told who the children of Shimon and um, Ruben are. Now we are going to go and understand Moshe's Mishpacha, his family. So we had the brother Levi, the Toladam. So he gave birth to um, three sons. Gershon, Kahat, or Merari. Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. Levi, Sheva, Shloshim, Meat, Shana. And Levi lived 137 years. So firstly, let's go through the three sons that Levi had. Remember that Levi, the tribe of Levi, was not included in the subjugation in Egypt. Okay? He nevertheless felt very connected to the Jewish people and wanted to be part of the Jewish people's hardships. So if you go look at the names that Levi gave to his sons, you will see that they very much describe the um, connection he had to the Jewish people. Gershon. What does Gershon come? Gershon comes from the root word ger, which means a foreigner, meaning that he recognizes that all of his brethren are foreigners in a foreign land. So that's why he called his first son Gershon, from ger. Then he called his second son Kahat. Kahat comes from Kaha. Kaha means because his teeth were set on edge because of his people's troubles. They were like being blunted because he like ground his teeth um, out of the desperation that they, they lived in. And his third son is called Merari. This is an easy one because the lives of his brothers had become maror, bitter. That's why we eat bitter herbs on Pesach. And that is why um, he called him Merari. Um, so again, we have the three names, Gershon, Kahat, and Merari, and this emphasizes that even when uh, um, there is troubles in a community and it's not affecting you personally, a Jew cannot feel secure if other Jews are suffering. So uh, an example, if God forbid there's a plague or that there is a famine, one should not allow oneself to enjoy oneself, even though, you know, he feels that it's got absolutely nothing to do with him. So that is why um, Levi and the whole tribe of Levi that were not enslaved, they never were part of the enslavement. They remained in Egypt. They stayed there, and he even named his children after the suffering of the people. What's also very significant is that of all Jacob's sons, the Torah only discloses how long Levi lived. We just read it. He lived 137 years. Why? Because Levi outlived all his brothers, 
And as long as any one of Yaakov's sons were alive, the enslavement could not begin because the brothers were highly respected amongst the Jewish people and amongst the Egyptians. So Levi lived long enough to eventually see the birth of Moshe and Aaron. But let's go and understand where Moshe and Aaron fits into this picture. So now we're going to look at verse 17. Bnei Gershon, that's Levi's son. Who were his sons? Livni, Vishimi, the Mishpachotam. He had two sons, Livni and Shimi. Bnei Kahat, okay, his second son. Who did he have? He had four sons, Amram, Yitzar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the third son, Bnei Merari, there was Machli, Mushi, and those were the families of Merari. So, to summarize, okay, we have the sons of Gershon, there were two of them, the sons of Kahat, there were four of them, the sons of Merari, there were two of them. And now we're going to understand where Moshe and Aaron fit in the picture. This is 101.9, High FM. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. So where does Moshe and Aaron fit into the picture? You will see now that we're going to focus on the second son of Levi, Kahat. I left out one little bit of the verses 17 to 19. Um, where it says, that Kahat's life was 133 years. So what we're seeing over here is that Moshe and Aaron are going to be coming from the second brother, the second son, sorry, of Levi. Levi again, Gershon, Kahat, and Marari. Kahat had um, four sons, one son being called Amram. Okay, now just interestingly, by mentioning that Kahat lived so long, that he lived 133 years, you must know that he lived to see his great, great grandson. Who was his great, great grandson? Well, we're coming up now to the parsha of Pinchas. Pinchas was the son of Eliezer, the son of Aharon, the son of Amram, the son of Kahat. Okay, and Pinchas is very fundamental because he is identified with Elijah the prophet. But I'm not going to get into too much more on that side. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. What was I saying about impediments and obstacles? Sometimes you have to accept them and sometimes you just have to find them challenging and sometimes you have to go over them. Well, we're getting over the impediments of load shedding and electricity coming back on and off. But we're back again. Right, we're talking about Moshe. So, Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kahat, and Marari. Kahat had four sons, the second son being Amram. And now you are going to see how Moshe comes around. Amram marries his aunt Yochebet. Um, she gives him Aaron and Moshe and Miriam but Amram's life was 137 years who is Yochebet? Yochebet is Levi's daughter 
So when I was telling you that Levi had Gershon Katz and Merari, he also had a daughter, Yocheret. So an aunt marries a nephew in this case. Okay? Um, Kahat, Kahat and Yocheret had the same father. They apparently did not have the same mother. And that's why, even though this is not allowed as a, a kosher marriage today, the Torah had not yet been given, so she was allowed to marry Amram. If Kahat and uh, Yochebed had had the same mother, even then they would not have been allowed to marry because that is forbidden according to the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, the seven law, Noahide laws. So Amram marries his aunt, and she gives birth to Miriam, to Aaron, and to Moshe. Amram lives long enough to go and see Moshe's grandsons. Moshe, we know, had two kids, um, and the one, uh, I'm not sure which son, had a son called Rechabia. And um, if anybody knows Israel, that's why we've got a place called Rechabia. Right? Um, so that is how we trace the lineage of Moshe and Aaron. Direct descendant from Levi, the son of Kahat, the son of Amram, and that's how they're drawn down. But now we are going to hear about another side of the Mishpacha, and that's the side that we just finished up the Parshiot with, the rabble-rousers. Ubenei Yitzhar, remember we had with with, uh, with 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 Kahat, um, Kahat had Amram, Yitzchar, Hebron, and Uziel. So Yitzchar's children, who are they? They are Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sitri. And we are told then that Aaron marries Nachshon's daughter, Nachshon's sister Elisheva, daughter of Aminadav. And she gives birth to Nadav, Abihu, Elazar, and Yitzamar. Okay, so we get the sons of Yitzar, and we get the, uh, the sons of Uziel. The, sorry, the sons of Yitzar are Korach, Nefeg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel are Mishael, Altafan, and Sitri. So we get those other uh, sons, sons, the grandsons, and this is where we get the mutiny of Korach. And he comes and he says to Moshe, we are cousins. We are first cousins. Who the heck do you think you are that you and Aaron and Aaron's sons have to become the high priests and the leaders of the Jewish people? The Torah notes here that Aaron marries the sister of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. Um, and because Nachshon becomes later the tribe of Yehuda, and um, we're told in the Midrash, very interestingly, that when a man chooses a wife, he should investigate her brother's because a woman's children will often take after her brothers. Since Aaron married the sister of the leader of Yehuda, he would be assured that his children would be righteous. And finally, just to finish up, we've got the sons of Korach, Ubnei Korach, Asir, Elkanah, Avi Asaf. Okay, those were Korach's children. And then we are told that Another significant uh, marriage port over here is Elazar ben Aaron. Elazar, the son of Aaron, 
Putiel, he takes a wife from the daughters of Putiel, Lola Isha, as a wife, Pinchas, and this is where Pinchas, I told you, he's very, very famous. That's where he's born. This is what the brothers um, and their lineages looked like. So here we have it, that Aaron and Moshe come from the second son of Levi in their lineage, and they and, and, and we worked out who they married and how they had their children and who they are, and then we also learn about the rest of the Gansa Mishpacha. Very important because at the end, now we see that um, when they're in the desert, and as I said, we read the Pasha just a little while before, Korach leads a mutiny, a rebellion against, against Moshe. Verse 26, who Aaron and Moshe, so this is Aaron and Moshe, says the Torah, are making it clear that they have aristocratic blood. And nobody has the right to go against that. Who Aaron and Moshe, Ashe Amar Hashem Lahem, and it was God that said this to them, God told this Moshe and Aaron, Bring the children of Israel out of Egypt on mass. This is your, uh, this is what you have to do. This is 101.9, Chai FM. Chai FM, your station of choice since 2008. What's absolutely enigmatic is that the Torah says this is the Moshe and Aaron that we're talking about. Verse 26 says, who Aaron and Moshe, this is the Aaron and Moshe. If we look at verse um, 27, it says here, those who spoke to Paro, the king of Egypt, who Moshe and Aaron, is Moshe and Aaron. So again, the Torah is emphasizing this Moshe and Aaron are the ones that Yochevet brought to Amram. They're the same Moshe and Aaron whom God told to bring the Israelites out of Egypt on them on mass. They're the same Moshe and Aaron that received God's orders. They're the same ones that obeyed and spoke to Paro, king of Egypt. So they're always the same Moshe and Aaron, and they remained saints from the beginning to the end. Okay, and so even when, even when there were harsh decrees, and even because of them. They were still the same Moshe and Aaron who received and were given the mission to rescue the Israelites. Most times, um, Moshe is mentioned before Aaron, but there are some places where Aaron is mentioned before, 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 uh, what's the name? Before, uh, Aaron. And the reason is that is, is because that while they were both equal in, uh, saintliness, in prophecy, Moshe exceeded Aaron by far, because as we know, nobody received um, prophecy as high as Moshe. So the order of names comes here to elude an important law. In an academic situation, knowledge and wisdom are paramount. So in an academic situation, the greatest scholar is given the head position. And this is true even if there are other scholars who are older than he is, because consideration is given to scholarship rather than age. If you are in a situation where there is a gathering that is not academic, 
then the oldest scholar is given precedence, even though there are, there are others who are present that are greater in knowledge. And so this is something that follows through um, when we talk about um, or, or we're addressing people in a gathering. If the person who has the greatest, uh, much greater knowledge and it is an academic situation, you mention them first. If they are in a social situation, then you, you swap it around and you give the covered to the one who is the oldest. And finally, we're going to finish with verse um, 28, where it says, By Heba Yom, Diber Hashem, Moshe, Be'eretz, Mitzrayim. This is the day that God spoke to Moshe in the land of Egypt, meaning Aaron there listened, God told, said to Moshe, and now we are going to, from next week, please God, come and see how um, they are going to talk to Pharaoh.